Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. It's not the shape of the nose, not the gefilte fish, the latkes. It's the, something that we all have inside, a neshama, a Jewish soul. This is what makes us Jewish. Why does it refer to this soul as the second soul? When in fact this soul should be called the first soul, the primary soul. Our Jewishness is the most important part of us. Why does he refer to it as a second soul? Anyone? <laughs> it's more hidden. <laughs> because it comes late in life. When a person, person is first born, the first soul enters into our life. First soul refers to our egos. Our egos are natural, instinctive. You don't have to go to school. You don't need any education. We're naturally selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed. It's very natural, instinctive. That's the first soul. And that soul is very entrenched within us. For the first, for a girl, the first 12 years of her life, and for a boy, the first 13 years of their life. Excuse me, that's not the soul that takes the oath, then. No, that's in heaven, before the soul, before the godly soul is sent into this world, the godly soul is administered an oath. But the first soul that enters our consciousness is the ego. Children are egotistical. Children are naturally selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed. And the Jewish years are not measured by the passport. And many people who are 90 years old, but emotionally and psychologically, they're still children. They're still <laughs> babies. Still under the table. It's only, you know, girls of course get a head start a year earlier. When a, a girl reaches the age of 12, she reaches maturity. And when a boy reaches the age of 13, they reach maturity. Barabat mitzvah is that the divine soul enters into our consciousness. And that's the beginning of adolescence. That's the beginning of maturity, of real education, when a person starts getting an inkling, when a person becomes aware that there is a higher reality, and the person starts asking, like, your conscience, conscience starts stirring, begins to stir. You start asking, the, you start wondering the intangible, the bigger questions, why, the bigger picture. Why, do, why am I here and how do I fit in and what's the purpose and... This is the first stirrings of the, of the uh, neshama into our consciousness. So, up until the age of Barabat Mitzvah, it's the animal soul, the ego soul, which is entrenched, which is the primary voice um, within the person. And that's this struggle between, classical struggle between Esav and Yaakov. Who is the firstborn? Esau claims that he's the firstborn. When it turns out, in truth, that Yaakov is the firstborn. Yaakov bought the birthright. How can you buy a birthright if you're not the firstborn? Because the truth was, Yaakov, at the root, at the source, Yaakov was the firstborn. 
And the Talmud uses the analogy. It says when you put in a pebble, you put two pebbles into a funnel, the pebble that goes in first comes out last. In other words, who was conceived first? Yaakov was conceived first. Then Esau. And because Yaakov was conceived first, he was born second. He, he was the pebble that went in first. And when you turn, turn over the funnel and let the pebbles go, the pebble that came in second comes, comes out first, and the pebble that came in first comes out last. So Yaakov, by buying the birthright, revealed the truth that at the root, at the source, he was really the firstborn. And the truth is in Jewish law, in halacha, it's the f- child who's conceived first who's actually considered the firstborn. Let's say in the days when, when you're allowed to marry two women, two wives, and wife number one becomes, is conce- conceives first, but she carries the child to term, nine months. Wife number two becomes pregnant a month later, but she gives birth after six months. Who is considered the firstborn? The one who was conceived first. So in Allah, in Jewish law, the one who's conceived first is really the firstborn, not the one who's born first. So the truth is, Yaakov is really the firstborn. Because he, at the root, at the source, internally, he came first. And this is the whole drama of life, the whole story of life. The Torah doesn't just tell us the story of Yaakov and Esau as a nice story, as a historical event. The Torah is teaching us about our personal lives. Yaakov represents the divine soul and Esau represents the ego, the body, the material, the animal soul, natural soul. soul. And this is the argument, the wrestling between Yaakov and Esau. Who comes first? Who's primary? Esau says, I come first. I'm born first. For the first 13 years of your life, I am primary. I am entrenched. By the time Yaakov comes around to the picture, I have a 13-year head start. And Yaakov's mission in life is to reveal, to buy the birthright, to reveal that the truth is, although it appears to be, that the animal soul, the eagle soul, is overwhelming and is so much more powerful than the divine soul. And it has a head start. And the world we live in we live, we are immersed in an environment which is egotistical and materialistic and natural and instinctive. So how can the conscience, how can the divine soul possibly overcome all this negativity, all this darkness? It seems like an impossible mission, impossible task. As the great Hasidic master, Rabbi Levitzel Baditchev, once put it, he cried out to God, he says, God, if you would have put spirituality and godliness before the naked eye, and you would put selfishness and self-absorption and materialistic urges in books, between book covers, then it would have been an equal fight. Instead, you put godliness and the divine in the books, in the holy books, in the shelves and book covers, while the materialist, the materialism is all around us, is before the naked eye. It's natural, it's instinctive, we're attracted to it. How can we possibly overcome? It's an unequal struggle. But the truth is that although it appears to be that Esau is the firstborn, Esau is primary, Esau has a head start, Yaakov's position seems to be impossibly hopeless. How can you fight against the whole 
system against the whole world. But the truth is, at the root and at the source, the divine soul is so much more powerful. And we see it. A person's connection to spirituality is so much more powerful than a person's connection to materialism. Of course, materialism is easy. It's natural. It's instinctive. Everyone wants it. It, it comes very easy. But a person is not ready to risk his life for it. To sacrifice for it. But when it comes to spiritual, to values, education, things that really matter in your, in your life, people are ready to sacrifice. People are ready to inconvenience themselves to give their children education, or for their values, or for their principles, for their convictions. So you see that a person's attachment and connection to spirituality is truly much more powerful than a person's connection and attachment to materialism. Materialism comes easy. Of course we're attracted to it. But it's a very superficial connection. While a person's connection to something spiritual, to values, to principles and convictions, to spirituality, to the divine, is very deep. It's very, very profound, very powerful. We're ready to sacrifice and convenience ourselves and even make the ultimate sacrifice. So what does that prove? That essentially, we are essentially spiritual. Essentially, our essence is truly spiritual, not material. And that's Yaakov's mission to reveal and uncover the truth that he is really the firstborn. That there's more power and more force in spirituality than there is in Materialism. And that's the analogy. The Torah uses the analogy of light and darkness. The godly soul represents, is represented by light. Divine godliness, holiness is light. While materialism, selfishness, self-centeredness, self-absorption, all of that is, rep is represented by darkness. And as King Solomon says, that the superiority of wisdom over foolishness is like the superiority of light over darkness. Which is a very powerful analogy because what is darkness? Darkness is nothing. Light is substance. Light is reality. What is darkness? The void, the emptiness. And therefore, a little light pushes away a lot of darkness. You walk into a huge dark room. You light a tiny match. You can see the whole room. How can a tiny little match light up so much darkness? And the darkness just melts away. The light doesn't even have to wrestle or struggle with the darkness. The darkness just melts away. Why? Because light is substance. Light is reality. Darkness is the void, is the emptiness. And therefore, a little light has the power and the strength to overcome all the darkness. And that's why the neshama of a person is called a ner. Ner Hashem Nishmas Adam. The soul of a person is like a candle. And ner mitzvah v'torah or Mitzvah, then Torah is also called a candle and light. So when the Jew does a mitzvah, when a Jew studies Torah, using his ner Hashem Nishmas Adam, his divine soul, it is very powerful. It is so powerful that the Yetzirah is terrified. If any Jew in the world suffers from a lack of self-esteem, all he needs to do is just to pay attention to his own Yetzirah. We see the Yetzirah doesn't compromise on a single Jew. And in a single act, he fights. Fights with everything that he has. God forbid to let a Jew study Torah for a minute. God forbid to let a Jew do a mitzvah. 
Because he knows how powerful that deed is. God forbid to let a Jew pray properly. Because he knows that the slightest movement that a Jew will do, the slightest positive thing that we do, a minute of, of Torah study, a penny of tzedakah, any good deed, any mitzvah, forget it. Yetzirah knows it's all over because it's so powerful. That light will just illuminate and just dissipate all the darkness. So it's part of the, the facade, the deception. The Yetzirah comes with the, intimidates us, overwhelms us with the darkness. Look, it's hopeless. I'm entrenched. I have a 13-year head start. Look all around you. The world is hopelessly coarse and materialistic. If you can't beat them, join them. But the wise one, the divine soul, the divine spark within us, with the help of the light of Torah mitzvot, knows better, has the wisdom not to be intimidated, and studies Torah, does a mitzvah, and therefore overcomes the darkness. And the darkness just melts away. So that's why he refers to the godly soul as the second soul. Just like Yaakov was born second. The divine soul enters into our life second. Second. When we're 13 or, or when we're 12. But the truth is, we have to reveal, our mission in life is to reveal that it's not secondary on the contrary. It's really the firstborn, the primary force in our life. Once it enters into our life, once we reach the age of Baran Bat Mitzvah, and from that point on, we make the divine soul into the primary force of our life, into our primary identity. And that's maturity. Maturity is when we have the consciousness and the wisdom to... Um, make the divine soul our personal identity and, um, and the primary force in our life. Okay. So he begins, he says, the second uniquely Jewish soul is truly a part of God above. The second uniquely Jewish soul is truly a part of God above. A part of God above is a quotation from Scripture, Eov 31.2. The Alter Rebbe adds the word truly to stress the literal meaning of these words. For, as is known, some verses employ hyperbolic language. For example, the verse describing great and fortified cities reaching into the heavens is clearly meant to be taken figuratively, not literally. In order that we should not interpret the phrase, a part of God above, in a similar manner, the Alter Rebbe adds the word truly thus emphasizing that the Jewish soul is quite literally a part of God above. So the actual verse itself states, <coughs> period, a piece of the divine. Al-Tarebi adds the word mamish. Mamish literally means literally. Mamish also comes from the word, you can touch it. You can literally touch it. The sense of touch. We know with children, until they, when they touch something, the sense of touch is a very powerful sense. You know, we underestimate the sense of touch. The sense of touch is extremely powerful. When you touch something, you know it's real. Even if you know that money is coming to you, but when you actually have <laughs> the cash in your hand and you can touch it, there's a whole different reality to it. There's nothing like a sense of touch. 
That's why you find, uh, unfortunately, with uh, spouse abuse, that people stay with their spouse much longer than they should. And one of the reasons is because of the power of the sense of touch. After they beat them, then they come and they hug them and they make up. And it's very confusing because the sense of touch is extremely, extremely powerful. Uh, children who are not touched wither away and die. Children who have no parents or in orphanages. There are people who volunteer just to come to hug them and to hold them. A child needs a constant hugging and touching. And, and um, you know, when the children grow up, they get married. And because human beings need that constant sense of touch. And, and that's a very powerful, powerful... Uh, uh, so we say something, mamish. Mamish is very tangible. In a way, mamish is also the most materialistic of all the senses. That's why we find in the Torah, when the Torah speaks in the language of man, the Torah says the eyes of God. God speaks. You know, God smells. Reach nichoach. The sacrifice is a beautiful aroma for God. All the senses we find, God hears. But one sense we never find in relation to God. God touching. Because touch is the most materialistic of all the senses. It's the lowest of all the senses. Mamish, called chush hamishush, the sense of touch. And yet here he says that it's a chelik, the, the divine spark that each and every one of us, on the one hand, it's literally a piece of God, means the very core and essence of God, the true essence of God, each and every one of us, contains the Jewish soul is literally a piece of God, the highest level, so to speak, of God, the very essence of God, literally a piece of God. But on the other hand, this essence of God traveled very far and has come into our bodies, into the world of touch, into the materialistic world, the world that we grasp with our fingers. The only reality that's real to us is something we can grab our hands around, something that we can touch and sink our hands into. And in this, in the lowest level, that's so materialistic, that's so far and so distant from anything spiritual, that you can't even use it as a metaphor for something spiritual or God. And in this world, in this arena, the divine soul enters this world and animates the, uh, the human body. So this is the two extremes. Here you have literally a piece of the divine essence in the highest level of the divine essence coming down into the lowest, lowest, lowest level. The world of touch. The most materialistic of all worlds. The world of the, of the sense of touch. And that's the contrast. That's the paradox. Uh, that's the drama of the Jewish soul. That something that's greater, the greater something is, the lower it could, it could, uh, it could elevate the lowest. The higher something is, it can elevate something lower. So what can elevate the world of touch, the materialistic world that we live in, the coarse world that we live in? How can we transform this world and refine and elevate and change this world and this environment that we live in? Only by the power and the strength of the peace, of literally a peace of God. Because only the core and essence of God as embodied in, in the Jewish soul has the ability to be able 
to live in this world and to participate in this world with our feet firmly planted in this earthly world and yet be able to transform this world into a godly place, into a holy place, into a divine place. So that's what Alter Rebbe says. Literally, a piece of the divine essence. And now he brings a proof from the scripture, from the Torah, right in the beginning. Continue. As it is written concerning Adam, whose soul was a comprehensive one, an neshama chlalit, in that it contained all the particular souls of subsequent generations, and he blew unto his nostrils a soul of life. Adam represented the sum total of all the souls, of the Jewish souls. So when it refers to Adam, we're really referring to specifically and particularly the Jewish soul. So we find when Adam was created, it says that God blew, blew into his nostrils. He blew a soul of life. And, continue. And as we say in prayer concerning the soul of every individual Jew, you blew it into me. That soul he breathed into Adam was all the souls of the, in the future? All yes, all the Jewish souls. Now, so he points out that God creates the entire world through his speech. It's as God said, and it came into being. God said there should be light, and there was light. God said there should be animals, and there were animals. God said there should be fish, and there were fish. Only when it comes to Adam, to man, Adam, who represents the Jewish soul, Adam is the exception. It doesn't say God said he should have life. God created his body as a, from clay, from the earth, and then God breathed, blew into his nostrils, blew a soul of life into his nostrils. So he's going to explain there's a difference between speaking and blowing. And then there's another difference. It said, God said that there should be an animal. And the words, out of the words, the words created the animal. God said there should be light and there was light. Here it doesn't say God said that man should live and he lived. It says God personally blew into his nostrils. That his breath, over there it says the words created the animal. God's words created the animal. God's words created the light. But here, it's God's blowing. His breath is the life of Adam. It's not that God spoke and those words created. It says God's breath himself constituted the, constitutes the life of Adam, the neshama, the soul of Adam, of man. So it's God's breath himself which is actually our soul. And what's the difference between speaking and breathing? When a person speaks, it's very external. You can speak and speak and speak and you don't grow, you don't grow tired. When you blow, you, you have to stop blowing. You, you lose your breath. Why? Because speech is very external to the person. There are people who speak for hours. But when you blow, it comes from the inside. You're blowing from the inside. So it shows that, that when you're blowing, it's much deeper. It's coming from a much deeper place. And therefore, you, you, um, you exhaust yourself. So 
the Torah is telling us the difference between the soul of man and all creatures, including the angels. All creatures, including the angels, were created through God's speech. It's, so to speak, from an external level within God. But the soul of man comes from within God, internally. God blows from within himself. And speech, it's the speech that created the animal and created all, all, all living beings, the birds and the angels. But here, it, God blew into his nostrils, blew his living soul. So it comes directly from God, from within God, so to speak. So it comes from a much deeper place. But the words are not external either. Well, it's divine words. But it's an analogy. Just like in the human being, words are external to us. So too, the words are the most external level of God, so to speak. You know, the most superficial level, so to speak. It's point of contact with something, just like when a person speaks, words are your contact with something outside of you. There is no physical. Right. But so the idea, this is like the most external, superficial level of God. Like his point of contact with something outside of him. But blowing comes from within God. It's like a piece of God himself, a piece of himself. That's why when you blow, you're exhausted. You can speak and speak and speak and you're not exhausted because it's external to you, it's superficial to you. So it's inexhaustible. But when you're blowing, you're giving a piece of yourself. When you're giving a piece of yourself, you know, you, uh, you run out of air, you run out of energy very quickly. Yeah. That's for all. No, we're talking about specifically the Jewish soul. This is specifically the Jewish soul. This is what makes us Jewish. We have a Jewish soul that's different from a non-Jewish soul. And he's explaining what's the difference. What is the Jewish soul? He says the Jewish soul is literally a piece of the divine essence. It's something that comes from within. From within God. And he'll, he continues to explain and to clarify what he means. The significance of the verb to blow as it relates to the infusion of the Jewish soul is now explained. It is written in the Zohar, He who blows, blows from within him. That is to say, from his inwardness and his innermost being. For it is of his inward and innermost vitality that a man emits through blowing with force. Blowing tires a person much more quickly than speaking as is readily observed, for it requires a greater exertion of effort and vitality. Hence, the fact that the metaphor of blowing is used to describe God's planting the Jew's soul in his body signifies that this soul originates in the innermost aspect of godliness. That the Jew is rooted in God's innermost and essential being is indicated further by the designation of the Jewish people as God's children whose souls originate in his thought just as a child stems from his father's brain, as the Alta Rebbe explains presently. So too, allegorically speaking, have Jewish souls risen in the divine thought. The Jew has his source in divine thought, the innermost level of godliness. All other created beings, even angels, are rooted in and created by divine speech. Speech is external in comparison with thought. The Medrash says that the Jewish people have arisen within divine thought. So the entire universe, including the angels and all the angelic and spiritual beings and higher levels of consciousness, all of that was created through God's speech, which is external and superficial to God. 
The Jewish people, however, are rooted within God's thoughts, which is much more internal. We know the difference between thought and speech is that speech, you can turn on, you can turn off. Speech is external. It's like, it's like a suit, clothes. You can take on, you can take off. But thought, you can't stop thinking. Even when you're sleeping, you're thinking. You're always dreaming. Whether you remember, you don't remember. You can't stop thinking. Just like you can't stop living. You don't take a break from life for a moment. You don't take a recess for life for a moment. You can't stop thinking. Because thought is connected to the soul. Yes, thought is a form of speech. It's also called like clothes, but it's clothes that are part of you. It's almost like, like the, uh, the turtle shell. It's part of the turtle. You can't, can't take off your jacket and put it back on. Speech is like taking off your jacket, putting it back on. It's not really part of you. But then you have like a snail and a turtle. The clothes are part of it. So it's, it's clothes, it's external, but it's part, of the, part of, the, of the person. Just So just like you don't stop living, you don't stop thinking. You're constantly thinking. So that's called internal in comparison to speech, which is external. Now within thought itself, you have different levels. The Medrash says the Jewish people have arisen in thought, meaning the highest level of thought. Because there's a difference what you're thinking about. I could be thinking about anything. Or I could think about something that really matters to you. Something important to you. That's a much, much closer, more intimate thought. And then you could think about something that's life or death. That your life depends on. That's, that's the most intimate level of thought. So the Jewish people are rooted within thought, which is internal in comparison to speech. And within thought itself, in the highest level of thought. It's like God thinking about himself. Something that really matters to him. I can think about something that really matters to me, or I can think about something that my life depends on, about myself. So the Jewish people have arisen in the highest level of thought. It's like God thinking about himself. And that's where the Jewish soul is rooted in. That's why the Jewish soul is superior even to angels. You know, the Buddha the most meditative spiritual being, the highest level he can reach, he can hope to reach, is something approaching, of, approaching an angel. Of course, he can never be an angel. No human being could ever be an angel because an angel sits and meditates 24-7. No distractions. No breaks, no, no naps. Purely spiritual, 24-7, meditating nonstop. No human being on earth could possibly even approach or come close to the level of spirituality of a pure energy, a pure angel. But all angels, even the greatest angels, are merely created through God's speech. But a Jewish soul is rooted within God's thoughts. And not just God's thoughts, which is internal, but the highest level of thought. As it is written regarding the Jewish nation, Israel is my firstborn son. And concerning Jews as individuals, you are children unto God your Lord. That is to say, that is, the significance of the Jews being called God's child is that just as a child is derived from its father's brain, his inner and essential being, so too, to use an anthropomorphism, is the soul of every Jew derived from God's thought and wisdom. What does the Torah mean when the Torah refers to the Jewish people, you are the children of God? I mean, God is not physical. What, does, what could that possibly mean? And he explains that just like 
the parent-child relationship. There's a difference between the relationship of a teacher and a student, as close as it may be, versus the relationship between a parent and a child. A teacher could only teach to a student that's capable of learning. The teacher cannot impart, cannot create the capacity to learn. The capacity to learn, the potential for learning has to be there. The teacher could then take the mind of the student and develop it. But the, the capacity to learn has to be there. As is, there's an expression in Yiddish, a cop You can't put a head on someone's shoulder. If a person doesn't have a head, then there's nothing you can do. If there's nobody home, there's no one to talk to. You can have the best teacher in the world, but if there's no capacity, there's no potential, there's no ability, there's no curiosity, there's nothing you can do. If a student has ability and curiosity and potential, the teacher can develop it and really go far. But the, the real parent-child relationship is different. The parents give the cup to the children. Children inherit their potential from their parents. So parents give the children everything they have. Although we find, as the Talmud says, that many times we find the children are superior to their parents. Children surpass their parents. Children exceed their parents. In the language of the Talmud, the the potential of the children many times far surpasses and exceeds the potential of their parents. But if you listen carefully to the words of the Talmudic rabbis, you, hear every, you see every word is carefully, carefully constructed. It says, Where does the child get his potential from? From the strength of the father, of his parents. Meaning that everything a child has, he has from his parents. But you can't give something you don't have. So how is it that the children exceed the parents? If the parents are not developed, how can they give it to their children? How can the children be more talented than the parents? And the answer is because they, even that they receive from their parents. Because parents give to the children everything they have. Not only their developed self, but even their potential self. Their full, total self. And that explains how we find their parents who are blind, God forbid, crippled or blind, who have children who can see. How can parents who are blind give birth to children who can see? You can't give what you don't have. The answer is because potentially the parents are able to see. There's nothing wrong with their soul. Their soul is potentially intact. There's something wrong with the vessel, with the eye. But internally and the soul level, the soul is perfect. The soul is not crippled. The soul is not blind. The soul is perfect. There's just something wrong in the system that the soul can't express itself. In the vessel, in the vehicle. But the soul itself is intact. And when parents give birth to their children, they give them their soul. They give them everything they have. They give them their essence. They give them their potential. And that's what, that explains why children surpass their parents many times. Because potentially, potentially, their parents give them all their potential. The parents never developed that potential. And the children take that potential and take it very far, much further than the parents
That's why sometimes talent skips a generation or two and shows up in a grandchild, a great-grandchild, a famous artist, a famous musician. It's, it was there, it was in the genes. It was passed along. Very rare. Well, you know the joke, they say, uh, <laughs> why is it that all rabbis, their children take over um, kings, presidents, whatever, it's dynasties. But when it comes to a comedian, you never see, uh, just because a comedian, his son takes over. But apparently, when it comes to comedy, you really have to have real talent. Yeah. <laughs> 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 just because you have a biological child doesn't... Uh... <laughs> but, the, uh, but the truth is that biologically, you give everything you have to your children. It's all in the genes. Sometimes the children develop it. Sometimes they develop your talent and they, and they develop your potential and take it a lot further than you ever did. So what do we see from this? That parents give to the children everything they have. It's not external. It's not superficial. The, parent, this, the teacher-student relationship is external. The student brings everything to the table already. All his potential. The teacher can give him that potential. The teacher can help, develop, help the student develop the potential that he has. But the parent-child, the parent gives the child everything the child has. Which explains that, that, that it's a core relationship, it's an essential relationship, which explains why children are able to understand their parents like no one else in the world can. Children can touch their parents in a way that no one in the world can. Because ultimately, even if you have a best friend, every human being is a universe apart. As much as we communicate, as much as we understand each other, as much as we connect, and as much as we rub each other the right way, and as much... No one really understands us. Each one of us is a world apart. No two people look alike, no two people think alike. Each one of us is a universe. <coughs> the only ones in the world who really understand, understand us are our children. Why? Because we are children, they are us. Our children, and we are our parents. We, are, we come from their essence. We are their essence. That's why in Jewish law, children inherit parents. Even a baby, a one-day-old child, inherits his parents, is a, inherits everything. Because the children are the parents. The parents continue to live through their children. Because we are the essence of the parents. Torah says, honor your parents. You are your parents. It's your essence, your biological parent. This is your essence. This is who you are. It's not external. It's not superficial. This is who you are. So the parent-child relationship is a, is a core relationship, is an essential relationship. The parent gives us from their very essence. And that's what the Torah is telling us about the Jewish people. That our relationship to God, it's not that we are a nation of philosophers or a nation of mystics. The Jewish people's relationship to God is like a parent-child relationship. We're called the believers, the children of believers. We inherit our relationship. We are the only people in the world that have a biological connection. We are the biological children of, of the original Jews, of Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, and Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, and Leah. 
The Christians today are not the biological children of the original Christians. Muslims today are not the biological children of Muslims. The Republicans today are not the biological children of the original Republicans, the original Democrats. Any affiliation or mysticism or religion is like joining a club. And it's arbitrary. You can change it. The Jew is the only exception. A Jew is a Jew is a Jew. You can never change your Jewishness. Even if you convert, you remain a Jew. Why? Because it's like the parent-child relationship. Could you divorce your parents? Impossible. You can't. Why not? Because it's your essence. Core things don't change. You can't divorce who you are. It's not external. It's not acquired. Everything else in life is acquired. Tastes are acquired. Party affiliation are acquired. You're conservative. You're Republican. All of this are acquired, interchangeable. You're Chinese, you're Japanese, you move to America, you become a generation or two. You're, you're full-fledged American. All of these things are arbitrary. You're Catholic, you're Christian, you're Buddhist. All of these things are interchangeable and arbitrary. You speak French, you speak English, you speak Russian. All of these things are acquired. Yes, it's very difficult to change. People don't easily change from Republican to Democrat and vice versa. They say a Democrat that's mugged becomes a Republican. Something changes in your life, something shakes you up in life. And you change your attitude, you change your belief, you change your religion. But ultimately, all of these things are interchangeable. Because they're all acquired. The one exception is, you can't change your parents. Because it's not acquired, it's not external. It's your core, it's your essence. The same thing is, is with our Jewishness. Rabbi, one question. But let's say a Jew married a non-Jew and they have a child. So what happens with... So... Okay, so we go after the mother. We, we know it's after the mother. Totally after the mother. Because, again, it's the mother's child. The husband makes a contribution. But it's the mother that carries the child for nine months. It's the mother that pays the price. It's her baby. The essence comes from the mother. God has the power to create, and he gave that power to women. Ultimately, not to men. So she, it's her baby. The very foundation of the child... As Freud said, after three years old, it's all over. Both boys and girls, the foundation comes from the mother. The reason the Jewish people survived all these years, isn't, is for, with all due respect, is not because of the rabbis. It's because of the Yiddish mama that instilled in their children Jewish pride, Jewish a sense of Jewishness. The essence. Again, we're dealing with essence. Being Jewish touches on your essence. So the mother isn't Jewish? So the child, it's not because we don't know who the father is. That's a very insulting reason. Even if you take a DNA test and you establish 100% that the father is Jewish, the child is certifiably 100% not Jewish. Because the mother, it belongs to the mother. There's no continuation, there's no continuity. No, that, that's the end of the line. That's the tragedy of intermarriage. It's the end of the line. That's the end of the Jewish line. 3,800 years comes to an end. But not if the woman is Jewish. Yeah, yeah she was asking if the Everything father... Everything the mother the woman right. produces yeah. right. is Jewish. Absolutely. Absolutely. But so, so the Jewish people are unique is that we are biological. Or someone who converts halachically which is why the conversion process is such a miraculous process. It's a divine process. It's almost like she organically becomes 
biologically infused or organically fused with the Jewish people. The convert acquires a Jewish soul. It's not like becoming an American citizen or becoming a Christian or becoming a, a, joining a religion. That's why the Reform and the Conservative have it all wrong. They look at it as like becoming an American citizen. So you take a few classes and you're sincere and you eat a few latkes and, you, you, and, you're, and you're, you're Jewish. But that's, that's, not, that's not what conversion is all about. If conversion was that way, of course. And, uh, but conversion, is, it's almost like a, a DNA transformation. It's, 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 it's like you become part of the family when you're not part of it. How can you become part of the family? An orange is an orange, an apple is an apple. A Jewish soul is a Jewish soul. A non-Jewish soul is a non-Jewish soul. It's a total transformation where the convert becomes, receives a Jewish soul, becomes fused within the Jewish organism. It's a miraculous divine phenomenon. No human being could accomplish it. It's a purely divine phenomenon. And that's why in Jewish law, a true convert is like a newborn baby. Technically, halachically, a convert is allowed to marry a sister because there's no connection anymore. It's a new human being, a new person. Literally like a new person. So this is a divine, the whole conversion is a divine act. And that's why the only one who can determine how to do it is only Hashem, the creator of heaven and earth. This is a purely divine act. We can't arbitrarily decide. It doesn't matter if you're an Orthodox person, a Reformed person. No human being could decide. Moses can't decide to do this. It's, a, it's like going into a spiritual laboratory and Hashem is telling us exactly what to do to achieve this, phenomenal, this phenomenon. So if a person decides to change anything, it's worthless. It's not worth the paper it's written on. That's why all these car wash fictitious conversions is not worth the paper it's written on. And it's actually a crime because you're deceiving so many sincere people. Getting back to what he was discussing here, what's unique about the Jewish people, when you see a Jew walking down the street, every Jew could name his great-grandfather 3,800 years ago. There's no human being on earth who can name a grandfather 100 years, 200 years, 500 years, 1,000 years. Every Jew in the world, 40 million Jews, could name his great-great-grandfather, great-great-grandmother 3,800 years ago by first name. Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, and Leah. And the 12 tribes. It's biological. Because it's our core, it's our essence. Being Jewish is not religion. The point he's making here is that being Jewish is much deeper than religion. Religion can change. Mother Teresa can turn into an atheist. It has happened to greater people than her. Something earth-shattering happens in your life and you lose your faith. You disengage from your faith. You lose your faith. It has happened. But a Jew will always remain a Jew. A Jew is a Jew is a Jew. Because it's deeper than religion. It's like a parent-child relationship. You can never divorce your parents. You can never change it. It's your essence. It's biological. It's who you are. And the analogy he gives is of a parent-child relationship, which is a very, very beautiful analogy because this is what the Torah is telling us. It's just like a child. Before children could reason or think or really understand, that child knows that these two people are very special to me. Papa and Mama are very special to me. Tati and Mami, however they pronounce it, these two people are very special to me. They can't explain it. They don't understand it. They can't even understand the reason. But they just know it. Where do they know it? In their guts, in their kishkas. With every fiber of their being and every bone in their body, they know that these two people are the most special people in the world. 
They know it with such clarity, with such certainty. It doesn't need any explanation. And all the explanations in the world won't add one iota to the certainty and the depth and the clarity of that feeling. Now, this person grows up, this child grows up, and becomes a professor, a Nobel Prize winner, who revolutionized the whole understanding of parent-child relationship, and wrote volumes and volumes on the subject, and is a professor and teaches and could articulate it and explain it and write columns and write... Do you think all of these explanations add one iota to the depth and the clarity that this professor feels towards his own parents? No. Because it comes from a much deeper place than just the mind, the ego-logical, rational mind. It comes from his very core, his very essence, his very being, his very kishkis. It doesn't need any explanations, and all the explanations in the universe don't add one iota of depth, of purity, of clarity to that feeling. Because it comes from, from your very being. That's what the Torah says. The Jewish people are ma'minim, b'nei ma'minim. We're believers, the children of believers. We inherit that faith. This is what makes us Jewish. We have a Jewish soul because every Jew is born to a Jewish mother or to someone who converts halachically is a Jew, 100% Jewish, has a Jewish soul, has that faith, has that connection. Not because we're necessarily philosophers, we're necessarily mystics, but something deeper than that. We have that neshama, we inherit, biologically we inherit that core, that essential relationship to God. We know God, a Jew knows God, with every fiber of his being and every bone in his body. Whether he's aware of it or not. Whether he's conscious of it or not. Whether he accepts it or he denies it, it doesn't matter. A Jew is a Jew is a Jew. You know who knows it? The non-Jew. They look at a Jew, no matter how assimilated he is, no matter how materialistic he is, no matter how alienated he is, no matter how self-hating he is, they'll always say, you're a Jew. A Jew is a Jew is a Jew. And they're right. Because they see things objectively. Honestly. The Jew doesn't see himself honestly and objectively. But the non-Jew does. It doesn't matter. All Jews are the same. Every Jew is 100% Jewish. And you're born a Jew. You're as Jewish as you will ever be the moment you're born. You will never become one iota more Jewish. You're as Jewish on a Wednesday afternoon as you are on Yom Kippur. You can go to yeshiva and study for 25 years. You won't become one iota more Jewish. You can have a beer to the floor and pay us to the floor. You won't become one iota more Jewish. You can learn to appreciate it more. You can learn to express it more. But you won't become one iota more Jewish. Another Jew is just as Jewish as you are. And if you truly understand this chapter in the Tanya, you truly understand the basics, the essence of the whole Hasidic philosophy, the essence of the love of one Jew for another Jew, the essence of the respect of one Jew for another Jew. How there cannot be any condescension or any looking down or any sense of superiority, um, you know, one Jew to, towards another Jew. That every Jew is Jewish because if one Jew looks down at another Jew, if a Jew thinks I'm so holier than thou and I'm so religious and so pious and the other Jew is, is not religious and the other Jew, and you look down at another Jew, what does that reveal? That reveals that that religious, pious Jew has, is clueless, 
has zero understanding of what makes him Jewish. He confuses Judaism with religion. He thinks that what makes him Jewish is the hundred pages of Talmud that he studied, his dress, which is all external, all acquired. It's not core, it's not essential. If that Jew truly understood that what makes you Jewish is you have a piece of the divine essence inside of you, a piece of God himself, and that you have it 100% the moment you're born, you can't add anything to it. It's there, 100%. There's no human fingerprints on it. It comes directly from God. And every Jew has it equally. So how can you possibly look down at another Jew? How can you judge another Jew by his surface, by his labels, by his externals? When you have to look at his core and his essence, he has the same pintalia that you have. You have nine simple, you have nine Moses, you have no minion. You had one simple tailor cobbler, you have a minion. A Jew is a Jew is a Jew. And why does Lubavitch understand this? Because we study Tanya. Education, education, education. That's why the emphasis of Chabad is education, chachma, bina, das, wisdom, understanding, knowledge. If you don't have education, you could be a billionaire and you don't know it. You're starving to death. You're walking around freezing, freezing to death, homeless, because you simply don't know it. You don't know the riches of being Jewish. A Jew who does not study Tanya, who doesn't, hasn't studied the second chapter in Tanya, who doesn't understand what makes us Jewish, doesn't understand what being a Jew is all about, who thinks, confuses Judaism with religion, doesn't realize it's much, much deeper than that. That's a Jew who's missing out on the royal feast. He's practicing, he's observing, and that's the, most sad, that's the saddest of all, the most pathetic of all. A Jew who's already committed, who's practicing, who's studying Talmud, studies Torah every day, Yet, no understanding, no love, no appreciation of another Jew, a fellow Jew. No understanding of the richness that we have inside of us. That we have a piece of the divine essence. And the reason a Jew does a mitzvah, when we stop a Jew on 42nd Street and ask him to put on tefillin, the reason you do a mitzvah to light a candle, you don't do a mitzvah in order to connect with God. No, it's all wrong. When you study the second chapter in Tanya, you realize it's because a Jew is already connected with God. Every Jew is connected with God. 100% connected. That is why you do a mitzvah just to express that connection that already exists. It's not a connection that you have to create. The connection is there. You just have to express it and reveal it. That's why they agree to put on the phone. That's why they agree. <laughs> And that's why the question, are you Jewish, touches such a raw nerve. Very powerful question. It shakes people to the core. Because it touches them in a very deep place. That's why you have resistance. Non-Jews, there's no resistance. Pleasure. We used to go visit, the, on the holidays, go visit the hospitals to visit the Jewish patients. So we come to St. Nazareth. Gave us the red carpet treatment. Gave us lists, rabbis. They couldn't do enough for us. Come to Mount Sinai. This was in Philadelphia. They slammed the door in our face. Too Jewish. If we give you, we have to allow the Seventh-day Adventists. I mean, a Jewish hospital, a Jewish holiday. We're coming to visit the patients. Wish them a good yom God forbid they should allow us in. It's, why such irrational resistance? Who fought the menorahs in the streets? In public places? The Jews. 
Why such irrational resistance to Jewish, anything Jewish? Because it touches such a deep chord. It just proves how Jewish we are. Because the Jewishness is there. A Jew is a Jew is a Jew. It's there. It's deep down. It's alive and well. The pintaliyid is there. The spark is there. You just have to ignite it. You just have to light a match. Turn the, the pilot is there. You just have to turn it into a, a flame that can cook and can lead to a beautiful life. Beautiful, wholesome life. So this is the foundation of the entire Hasidic philosophy, understanding this chapter, that a Jew is like a child to God. A Jew comes from the essence of God. Rabbi, can I ask a question? Yes. When you say that the child inherits from their parents biologically, do you mean the soul? Well, the child inherits everything from their parents. Um, their talents, their abilities, everything like characteristic traits. Yeah, the soul, the soul as well, absolutely. So it's a part of their parents' soul? It's like a big part? It's a version of their parents' soul? Well, yes, children are their parents. That's why children inherit their parents. There's a connection between children and parents. It's not just external connection. It's not just that they happen to be living in the same house, uh, parents and children. It's a soul connection. Family in general is a soul connection. There's, a, there's an unconditional love between siblings, between family, because, you know, as the ex famous expression, blood runs thicker than uh, anything else because the connection is unconditional. There's unconditional love between family because there is a, a relationship. It's a soul connection. It's not just an external, circumstantial connection because we grew up in the same household and we share the same parents. So, so is it all because the, the, the genes I understand is... Well, the genes is just a reflection of something deeper. Everything is just like you have the surface, the skin, the skin, then you have the chemical, and then you have the, you know, then you have the, uh, the genes, and then you have the, uh, um, you know, which, which lives on for generations, for lives on forever. What I'm trying to say is the, the child gets their unique soul, which is, which is sort of a, it, it's made after the imprint of their, the molding of their parents' soul. Right. Is that what it is? Well, th there is a strong soul connection between the soul of the parent and the soul of the child. What we are going to learn at the end of the chapter um, of the individual, the, the independence of the individual that as much as parents give to their children, nevertheless, each child is a universe apart. Each child is a world apart. Each child receives their individual soul directly from God. And which is a very powerful point that he'll focus on at the end of the, of the chapter. But there is a soul connection between parents and children. That's reflected in, you know, in, the, in the gene and, and all the other characteristic traits that children reflect from their parents. Okay, so now he's going to explain. He says that although the Jew comes from the brain of the father, because we know the sperm originates in the brain of the father, comes from the spine, and then it's connected to the brain of the father, so too in the analogy, it's like the, the root of the Jew's soul not only comes from God's thoughts, 
which is um, external, but it comes from actually the mind of God, so to speak, God's thought and wisdom, but not the essence of God. So he, says, so, he's going, so he explains that God and his wisdom are one and the same. So when you say that just like a child is rooted in the mind of the father, so too the soul is rooted in the mind of God, but God and his mind are one and the same, are inseparable. So in, in essence what we're saying is that the soul, the Jewish soul, is rooted in God's essence. The Alter Rebbe now takes this concept a step further. Deriving from God's thought and wisdom actually implies that it derives from God himself, as he goes on to explain. For he is wise, God possesses the quality of wisdom, but not with a wisdom that is known to us, created beings, because he and his wisdom are one. So Maimonides explains that a human being is a composite. A human being is not a perfect unity. We are made up of many, many parts and components. Even the human mind, when we understand something, and you absorb and assimilate an idea, a concept, you can really break it up into three parts. You have the person who knows. You have the mind with which you know. That's the tool with which you know. Through which the soul knows and learns and acquires information. And then you have the information that you've acquired and you've learned. Now, each of these things could be three separate parts. You have the person. You can have a person without a mind. <laughs> yeah, and then you have the mind, the ability to know. And then you have the knowledge. You can go through life without acquiring the knowledge. So even as these three merge and come together, when a person learns, the person and the mind and the information all merge and become one. It's not an absolute unity. It's really, you can break it down to three components. While God, Maimonides says, this is one of the 13 principles of faith, and this is a mitzvah, to believe. Not only in the existence of God, but it's a mitzvah to believe in the unity of God. That God is not a composite, God is an absolute unity, a pure unity. That within God you can't separate between God, His mind, and the information. God, and the knower, and the knowing, and what's known is all one and the same and inseparable. And Maimonides says, this is very difficult for human beings to comprehend because we can only use ourselves as, as an analogy. We extrapolate from ourselves. We use ourselves. We can understand. We can relate to something that we, we can understand that's within our experience. So a composite type of understanding that we can relate to. But an absolute type of understanding, a pure type of understanding, which is an absolute unity, like as if God knows himself, like when a person knows himself, which in that case, you can't really separate between the, the person and the knowledge and the knowing. It's all one and the same. It's the, like the knowledge comes from within you. It's etched from within you. So you and the knowledge and what's known is all one and the same, inseparable. So too, everything that God knows, and God knows the entire universe, from the greatest angel down to the amoeba, the tiniest atom, everything, everything that God knows, it's a knowledge that comes from within God himself. So you can't separate between God and the knowledge, the, God's mind, so to speak, and the information and the awareness that God is aware of. Within God, it's one absolute, pure um, unity. Now, it's very difficult for us to relate to that.
Because we are a composite. Everything within our life is made up of components. We can't think of, of like organic whole. It's very difficult for us. It doesn't say it's impossible. But it's very difficult. It's not within our experience, our ordinary daily experience. We don't experience um, what we call uh, organic or, or, or holistic or something that's organically and holism. That's not, that's not part of our experience. It's a very rare experience. It's like a deep down, a deep down level of awareness, a subconscious type of awareness. But on our conscious level, on our daily level, we don't operate on that level. So we, we, it's very difficult. It doesn't say it's impossible. It's very difficult for us to relate to that type of awareness, that type of knowledge. But we believe and we understand that God's knowledge is different than ours. God is organic. God is whole. God is one. Absolute pure unity. So much so, there's no dichotomy. Within a human being, you can divide between subjective and objective. The person and you are observing something outside of you. So there's a clear split between the person and the person is objective, detached. There's a clear detachment. The intellectual prides himself in this detachment. The scientist prides himself in this detachment. I don't get involved, I'm not emotional, I'm detached. There's me, and then I'm, I'm observing the world around me. There's a clear split. Detachment. Within God, there's no split. You can't divide. There's no subjective, objective, inside, outside. There's no split, there's no detachment. It's, it's a total, organic, whole, inseparable, pure, absolute unity. God and the knowing and what's known is all one. Because everything comes from God. There's nothing outside of God. But it's very difficult for us to fathom that type of awareness where, where there's no distinction between subjective and objective. It's interesting. The modern physicist does relate to it. The modern physicist knows that when you, go to the, the, when you go deep down on the level of electromagnetic radiation, when you go on the, on the deepest levels of the atom, you can't separate the observer from the observed. The scientist, actually the observer, changes the reality of what's observed. He becomes an inseparable part of the reality. There's no detachment, there's no split, there's no disconnect. When you go deep down into the level of the subatomic level, which the equivalent within a person would be the subconscious level of awareness, which is inaccessible to us, and most of us never even experience it, at least not deliberately and consciously, maybe occasionally we get a glimpse of it, on that level, there is no subjective, objective, there's no detachment. We just become one organic whole. You become one with the subject, with the object. You become totally unified with the object. There's no separation. But experientially, on our conscious level, we don't experience. We experience a very clear cut, detachment, disconnect. Subjective, objective, the person who's and the mind, and the information, and the three different parts, that all come together. But within God, we can understand that God is an absolute unity. Therefore, when we say that the Jewish soul is rooted in God's mind, since God is an absolute unity, God and His mind are absolutely one. So what you're saying in essence is, that the Jew is rooted in God's mind, you're saying that the Jew is rooted in God's essence. So it's not just God's mind. As great as it is, it's just a part of God. No, a Jew is rooted in the very essence of God. The Jewish soul is rooted in the very essence of God.
And as Maimonides writes, he is knowledge and simultaneously the knower who knows and comprehends through the knowledge, and he is that which is known. God is also the subject of knowledge and comprehension, as Maimonides concludes. This means that God's wisdom and comprehension are totally different from man's. In human comprehension, there are three separate and distinct components. A. The person's soul, the knower, and the possessor of knowledge. B. The power of intellect and comprehension, the knowledge by which the person knows. C. The subject of the knowledge, the known, such as a law in the Mishnah or a discussion in the Gemara, which is apprehended and known. Concerning God's wisdom, however, Maimonides states, He is the knowledge, the knower, and the known. God is the means of comprehension, the knowledge, and at the same time, he who understands, the knower, and is also that which is understood, the known. He's the object, he's the subject, because really he knows himself, because everything comes from himself. There's nothing outside of God, so it's like God knowing himself. It's like when we know ourselves, we are the subject. We know and we are the subject, so it's one and the same. Maimonides continues, and this is not within the power of any man to comprehend clearly. He doesn't say it's impossible to understand, he said it's very difficult to understand. It's very hard to understand clearly because it's not within our, our realm of our, of our conscious awareness. So when we hear it, we're accepting what the words say, but we really don't, we don't know what it, what it No. So firstly, we could imagine it. Because deep down, subconsciously, we do have such, there is such a level of awareness where there's no separation, where we become totally unified with the subject, almost as if we are the subject. Um, also, we could, the mind could understand that God's mind is different than ours. We could understand that. The mind is wise enough to realize that God's mind is not like our mind. We are a composite. Everything in our world is technical, is made up of components, of parts. But God is, is organically whole. God is one. The mind could understand it, at least could picture it. So that much we could understand. We could understand that God's mind is different than ours. Once you accept that premise that God's mind is different than ours, then you could understand, you can relate to that God's, God is a subject. God is the knower and God is the knower and, and, and He's inseparable and one. And once you accept it, then you realize that God is different and His knowing is different. And therefore, you have no question, how can God know the future before it happens? And yet we still have freedom of choice because His knowledge is not like our knowledge. Since God is the subject, His knowledge is entirely different. So therefore, there's no past, present, future. God knows the future, but it doesn't affect our choice. God knows what we will choose. Because God's knowledge is different than our knowledge. So once you accept that premise and you understand that premise, and you're not trying to uh, extrapolate God's understanding from your own understanding, you're not trying to compare, then you can understand that God's knowledge is different and therefore it's not a question. You can't ask a question. If a human being were able to know what a person will choose, then that's a good question. How can a person have freedom of choice if we know what the person will choose? Because if we know what the person will choose, the only logical conclusion is that the person must be programmed. Because if we know for certain what the person will choose before he chooses, obviously the person has no choice. But since God's knowledge is not like our knowledge, it's different than our knowledge, God and His knowledge are one, God is the subject, therefore, 
You can't ask that question. God knows the future without, without determining the future. It doesn't take away from our freedom of choice. Maybe we'll continue this uh, next week. As, uh, he elaborates on this, especially with the note. To be continued. Mm-hmm.